0: a mixtape just around the corner did a lot in california can't wait to drop this don't you yeah they gonna have fun with
1: that smash like song come in my songs gonna break through like a running back hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with formula one happy thanksgiving to everybody in the united states it is thursday november 23rd ah uh, once again i'm mark hamilton not joining me today mr daly and that's because mr daly is off on a mission a very special tactical Black Friday mission. And that mission is he's going to get a new laptop. And I don't know if you've picked up on this over the last couple of years, but our podcast has been greatly hindered by two poor pieces of technology. One is the piece of string that runs into Mark's house that is allegedly his internet connection. And two is his 2008 Circa Laptop. So we're very excited that one Mark is going to get a new laptop. So hopefully we're going to be able to start doing video again. And number two, it sounds like he's finally going to get a high-speed internet connection, which means that we're also going to be able to do live streaming and better video quality and better audio quality and all of those great things. So happy Thanksgiving Day to everyone in the United States. If you're heading out on Black Friday to do some shopping, good luck. I hope you find some great deals. Mr. Daily has found a great deal on a laptop, but uh, the retailer that has sold it in the brand, are not sponsors, so I'm not going to give them a free plug here, but rest assured, Mark's in a good place, so super excited about that a couple of cool things off the top that we should always talk about, of course shout out to our friends, Magnus Greaves and the entire team at Race Weekend if you didn't listen to the podcast that we did a couple of days ago with Magnus, please check it out, Magnus was in Las Vegas for the Grand Prix he was also present at the Lewis Plus 44, Takashi Murakami Win Hotels and resorts, pop-up. Of course, Race Weekend was a big part of that, and the latest special edition issue that's all about Las Vegas and Lewis and Murakami is available now, and you can actually buy that episode independent of any other collection. But again, that is a fantastic Christmas gift, and I highly recommend you check it out. And if it's for you as well, it's okay to be selfish now and then. Buy it for yourself. Uh, Big shout-out as well to Tease and the entire crew at Racing Exclusives talking about fantastic holiday gifts. If you're looking for some cool F1 memorabilia of course all of it includes a fantastic certificate of authenticity or as they say in the biz a coa you can also check out their website they've got some very 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 cool stuff up there and of course they are the ones that furnished us with the grand prize for our fantasy league which will be decided this coming third thursday this coming sunday after the grand prix and abu dhabi at yas which we'll of course talk to a little bit later in the show Of course, that is also a pretty effective Segue to providing a quick F1 Fantasy update. I mean, the reality now is this thing isn't locked up, but it's pretty clear that the winner is going to be one of the following. So as it stands right now, Michael Karangi 16 has locked into the number one spot with 6,511 points. Number two, Axis Simon, 6,486 points. And number three, Bengals Bubs on 6,457 points. Although immediately behind him, just one point behind is and Pargo, Marquinhos at 6,000 i <laughs> 456 points so when you look at this really the top four the top five are really only separated by 50 or 60 points where this gets tricky though is there hasn't been a lot of movement in the standings simply because their driver lineups are so similar which means that something really spectacular would have to happen much farther down the grid for instance a Daniel Ricardo victory or a Yuki sonoda podium to really kind of surprise us coming out of Sunday but again super excited that we're gonna to be able to wrap up that fantasy league, and we won't have to talk about it anymore. But of course, we'll shout out whoever does manage to win that championship. And of course, quick reminder Max is leading the championship. He's won the championship. He sits on 549 points. He's won 18 Grand Prix and has 20 podiums this year, all of which are records. Sitting in number P2 is Sergio Perez on 273, followed by Lewis on 232. Of course, those two spots are now locked in. There won't be any movement there. And then Carlos Sainz of the Ferrari team is on 200 points. Fernando Alonso, of course, with Aston Martin, who had that torrid start, is also sitting on 200 points. And I think as much as Aston Martin might say it's not important to them, I think that they are feverishly hoping to bring home that P4 spot in the World Drivers' Championship after the Grand Prix this weekend at Yas Marina. And of course, Red Bull sitting on an absolutely astounding 822 constructors' points. That is more than double Mercedes who sits P2 at 392. But a couple of interesting things that we can watch this weekend one Mercedes P2 they are only four points up on Ferrari so that is wide open and again that would be something I would assume is important to the team in Marinello and and Brackley Bricksworth that obviously there's a lot of bragging rights that go with finishing P2 versus P3 and also a ton of incremental cash and then when you look at P4 and P5 McLaren currently sits on 284 points Aston Martin sits on 273 again just or just separated I should say by 11 points and again that is wide open and i think for those two teams mclaren especially that windfall of cash that comes with finishing p4 instead of p5 is hugely important and aston martin of course they're flush with cash given all the investors that have been aligning themselves with that team over the last 12 to 18 months i i think they would love to finish p4 and i think that would cap what was originally a really great season, which kind of fell apart and come back together again. I think for them to finish P4 is something that they would be very, very happy with as we wrap up this championship. A couple of other quick stats here that I wasn't aware of until I was perusing the old Reddit over the last couple of days. But Red Bull drivers have now finished officially 1-2 in the World Drivers Championship. And remarkably, that is the first time that this has ever happened. Of course, it didn't happen the last couple of years. Apparently, it never happened in all of those years that Sebastian Vettel and Mark Webber were driving together. So that was pretty interesting. Like I said a few moments ago, Max is the first driver now to score 20 podiums in a season. That number has a bit of an asterisk beside it not necessarily because of anything max or the red bull team have done but principally because the seasons keep getting longer and longer and it wasn't that long ago that the idea of a 20 race season was pretty unfathomable but that said if you look at his percentage of podiums versus the number of races he's competed in that number is astronomical it's just fantastic result Um, another stat i saw on reddit and again i don't know who Posted this, so I can't give credit, so I apologize. But Lewis has two five-win-win streaks in his career. This season alone, Max has a six-win-win streak and a 10-win-win streak, which is crazy, but also just kind of speaks to it, the level of dominance that he's demonstrated this year. Uh, Nick DeVries, of course, the former, now former AlphaTauri driver and one-time Williams driver, he's going to replace Jose Lopez in Toyota's hypercar lineup for the 2024 World Endurance Championship. If you're curious as to where he's going to be driving next year and then a couple of quick updates on the show. One, episode 500 is coming end of next week. So, our 500th episode celebration won't actually be aligned with our actual numeric Episode 500, YAS will actually be episode 500, so our 500th episode celebration might actually be 501 or 502, but know that that's coming, and we've got a ton of really cool guests that are eager to be a part of that, and by eager, it's really me. DMing them multiple times, pleading and pleading with them to come on our show and shower us with praise. But we do have a killer lineup for that episode. So currently, we've got Elizabeth Blackstock lined up, Matt Clark, Sam Cooper, Magnus Greaves, Tim Haraney, JT the Human. They will be making their first appearance on our show, which is something we're very, very excited about. Matt Sikaris, Bryson Sullivan, and Seth Whiteberg. And of course, we're going to be recording all of these mini segments over the course of the next four to five days and then piecing them together into something that I think everyone is really going to enjoy. We also, independent of our 500th episode special, we've confirmed Megan Gilks, the W Series former W Series race winner and of course F1 Academy driver and now full-time employee at the Aston Martin Formula One team. She'll be coming on the show in the next couple of weeks. A couple of other Interesting tidbits from the world of Formula One, and I, ugh, I kind of grate my teeth at this one. But uh, CBS is developing a workplace comedy series along with Haas's racing or Haas Racing's Gunther Steiner, who will serve as an executive producer. Braun, The Impossible Story documentary, is out now. I think it came out last Friday in the U.S. This is available on Hulu. It's a four or five-part series. It is blooming fantastic in the other territories so I think much in the Middle East and Europe and Canada it's available on Disney Plus and that is available now so make sure to check that out and we will be doing a reaction slash uh, review show at some point in December I haven't talked to daily about that but I think that's a pretty cool concept so look out for that and then according to Adam Stern Jerry Bruckheimer revealed at the F1 event in Las Vegas this past weekend that the Apple movie with Brad Pitt the Apple Formula 1 movie with Brad Pitt will come out in the summer of 20 25. So I think a lot of us were hoping that that might be something we would see next year, but I guess by the time they polish it all up, get it through post-production and decide when and how they're going to release that, it'll be 2025. Now, the question there is, of course, given that this is an Apple product, will it get a cinematic release? Because I feel like this is something that a lot of people would be very excited to see in theater, similar to Oppenheimer and Barbie and Top Gun, Maverick, that that's one of those things that could have a draw that would bring people into the cinema. So here's to hope Hoping that that movie does get a theatrical run, not just a direct-to-streaming run. All right, let's get on with the news. So the first story today is actually a couple of weeks old, but I thought it was pretty interesting. Partly because I love the brand that's associated with this story, but I think as our listeners know, I don't really love the individual the personality but according to sports i just double checking that's where i'm reading it from but according to sports psycho bunny announces motorsport quote unquote icon will buxton As brand ambassador. And this article goes on to read that Psycho Bunny's partnership with motorsport journalist Will Buxton as their brand ambassador represents a unique fusion of fashion and motorsport, promising an exciting future with the introduction of Psycho Bunny Racing in 2020. 24. So if you don't know, uh, Psycho Bunny is a very trendy, very popular, uh, rapidly growing clothing brand based out of Montreal. I think they have stores in most major cities across North America now. They're a brand that I really do like and I've got their stuff and my son's got their stuff. And it's cool that they want to activate alongside Formula One. That Formula One obviously has a lot of exposure. And if you didn't notice this weekend and last weekend, Will Buxton was actually wearing Psycho Bunny apparel when he was in the pit lane, on the road, in the paddock, doing his thing in the Formula One weekend in front of those F1 cameras. And it's very obvious because they clothing is usually pretty distinct, and the Psycho Bunny logo is very, very visible and very, very evident, so obviously he's now taken on, as Sports Illustrated says, they're role of international brand ambassador. So this one's bittersweet for me because one, I, I love Psycho Bunny and I love the brand and I like to see Canadian clothing companies do really well. I'm excited to see what Psycho Bunny Racing is and what that looks like in 2024. Not the biggest Will Buxton fan and people ask all the time, why, why, why? And I can give some vague reasons. I just, I ugh, there's something about the fact that he was nominated without a vote to kind of be the face and the global representative of F1 to its ever enlarging and growing community. And I don't know that he should necessarily be that person, that there's better people within the Formula One community that could have taken on that role of kind of Formula One brand ambassador in a lot of ways. But all of that aside, Psycho Bunny's decided that he's the guy they want to align with. So obviously, good luck to them and expect to see an awful lot of Psycho Bunny during those Sky Sports or F1 TV Pro broadcasts. Now, the next story is a very, very juicy story. And it's breaking even as I'm sitting here recording this podcast, and this is all about AlphaTauri. And of course, if you've been listening to the show over the last three or four or five or six months, we know a couple of things about Alpha AlphaTauri, which is one, that Christian Horner and the Milton Keynes-based Red Bull team are going to have much closer scrutiny Over the developmental trajectory of this team, and of course, this team is now going to buy parts from Red Bull whenever they can based on the current regulation set. We also know as well that they are going to be rebranded, that the AlphaTauri branding was a mistake, and that they are going to lean into branding that presumably has something more of a racing pedigree or racing lineage. And we also know that they're going to bring in some pretty significant external sponsors because apparently, and I've still never seen this in person, but AlphaTauri is a clothing brand that's owned by the Red Bull corporate conglomerate. And I think the hope was that, hey, you know what, having a team named after that might bring some exposure to that clothing brand and it clearly hasn't worked. So a couple of things to report here. One, Spotters is record, or reporting sorry, that according to reliable sources, The two U.S.-based partners that will join AlphaTauri in 2024 are one, Cash App, and two, Visa. Additionally, Swiss watch brand Tudor Watches is also due to join the team, and the main colors of the team will likely become blue and silver. So that's all pretty exciting. And I think there was an awful lot of speculation earlier this year that they were going to link up with Adidas, that Adidas or Adidas, depending on where you live, uh, would become their primary sponsor. They may still partner, but it looks like the two principal primary sponsors are going to be Cash App and Visa. And it's funny because I've read some commentary recently about the fact that there were some strong synergies between the two primary brands, one being Cash App and one being Visa, and both in the financials services industry that that kind of makes a little bit more sense. Now, this place or the way that this gets really 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 juicy is and I'm actually bringing up this story as we're speaking here and I'm I'm a little bit reluctant to comment on this because of the source, but I've had three or four people email me now with similar information, so I'm going to go with it partly because I've teased it so much, but It sounds as though based on some leaked images, the Alpha Tauri team next year will be known as Racing Bulls. So I'm just going to let that soak in here for a minute, that we're going to have a team on the grid called Red Bull Racing, and we're going to have a team on the grid called Racing Bulls Racing. So think about that, absorb it, take it in, and then I'm going to give you a second, and then I'm going to share my thoughts on this. So one, two, three, four, five. All right, so you all know my thoughts about the fact that we live in a world where there are 10 teams on this walled garden that is the Formula One grid, and that nobody, regardless of their resources, their financial might, their racing pedigree, can get on the grid. And I'm talking specifically about Andretti and General Motors. They are locked out, it is a done deal, and they need to amend the Concord Agreement to basically prohibit, to ban, any team from ever even considering an entry onto the grid. And where this gets really frustrating is obviously you have teams like Williams and Haas that don't spend to the cap and they're mismanaged in this constant turnover with the exception of Gunther Steiner who should probably be turned over that you've got two teams that are really at the end of the day, completely uncompetitive and don't add value to Formula One. And then you have this team in AlphaTauri, formerly Toro Rosso, that we've all acknowledged is really basically just a training ground for Red Bull. That Red Bull basically has two teams on the grid. So they have this unfair build an advantage where their young drivers can get reps at the Formula One level, which is something that all the other teams on the grid should be screaming about. But on the other hand, they now have a team on the grid in a sport where the valuations of the individual teams are... Are huge, And I've said for many years, I think the reason why the other nine teams or the other eight teams on the grid have tolerated this is because they didn't see AlphaTauri slash Toro Rosso as a competitor, meaning that the alternative is you have a team that is actually competing for constructors' points and competing with them in the championship and taking constructors' points off of them and ultimately taking prize money away from them. Because this team has historically been so uncompetitive, it was actually a financial advantage to the other teams in the championship that this team existed. The problem now is, one, they're very, 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 very valuable from a commodity perspective in in the sense that the valuation of all the teams has creased exponentially and Red Bull has benefited twice because they own two teams on the grid. But it's also very clear now that they are setting this team up to be competitive in ways that it was never necessarily intended to be before. And it's really problematic because... Christian Horner, and we talked about this even within the last six weeks, was very clear about the input and the involvement that he had in deciding who was going to run this team. That ultimately, Christian Horner is by design, part and parcel, the team principal. That they may have a deputy, I'm going using air quotes here, they may have a team principal, but they're really a deputy team principal who's reporting into Christian Horner. So, For a couple of reasons, they have this unfair financial advantage now where they have two teams on the grid and they can pull prize money from two teams. And then you have a team who has a sister team who will develop drivers for you. So you have this ongoing, I would say, flow of talented young drivers that have had reps at the Formula One level, which is an unfair advantage. And then finally... It just throws into question the competitive nature of Formula One, that you have two teams now that are owned by the same corporate conglomerate. And all of this is just wildly unacceptable. But the F1 media does not ask these questions. They do not drive this narrative that they just... Accept it and it's infuriating. Just imagine, imagine for a minute a world where, in a team, professional team sport, let's say the New York Yankees bought, I, I don't know, they bought the New York Mets and the New York Mets just became their farm team. But now all of a sudden, all of their players, all of their players were getting reps at the major league level. So it was easy to move them over to the Yankees where they were already used to the stadium and the pitchers and all of that kind of stuff. And then there's the competitive piece. Like I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that, you know, ultimately these two teams might be competing a little bit more, but ultimately the team that's more likely to win a championship is gonna get the advantage on the track. So all of a sudden you might have an instance where, hey, an Alpha Tower slash whatever it's gonna be called is going into a corner with a Red Bull. Well, those two Alpha Tauri drivers, they know very well to back off and give Max room. So all of a sudden, these teams are treating the Red Bull drivers differently than they would anyone else on the track. So for all of these reasons, it's wildly unacceptable that in a world where there's 10 teams, forget it, in a world where there's 20 teams, that two teams can be owned by the same corporate parent. And then it's not as though there is even this clear autonomy between the two teams. What autonomy existed between the two of them has clearly been eliminated. And Christian Horner has taken over control of that AlphaTauri organization. And I get it. There's a team principal there and there's a CEO, blah, blah, blah. They all report informally or formally into Christian Horner because he's the one that handpicked those people. That it's just... Again, if we're not going to allow new teams onto the grid, you need to break up this 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 Red Bull conglomerate on on the racing grid. Like you got to break this up and force a sale. That if you think that hey, Andretti shouldn't get a new team, they should buy a team. Yes, force the sale of AlphaTauri. And I think that's I think that's where I'm going to leave this one before we move on to the uh, the next topic. And the next topic here is a quote. From Adam Stern. I feel like we quoted him earlier on in this episode. According to Adam Stern, ESPN got 1.3 million viewers for Las Vegas, the third largest US audience of the season. And Vegas, not surprisingly, led local markets with a huge 7.4 share or a 7.4% rating. Now, the number itself isn't great, and I I think the NASCAR race this weekend significantly outperformed the Formula One number. Uh, It's a little bit disappointing, I think, in the sense that, hey, you would expect that a lot of people would tune in for this because it's the inaugural Las Vegas Grand Prix, but on the other hand, let's be honest, a huge portion of the U.S. viewing audience is on the eastern seaboard, and this race started at 1 a.m., not wrapping up until almost 3 a.m., so it's understandable, and so many of the things that people are talking about about with respect to Las Vegas, reflecting back on the weekend, is you got to find a way to get that start time to be a little bit earlier. And I get, I totally get that 10 p.m. Pacific time is 6 a.m. for most of Western Europe, and maybe some of those folks are going to get up early to watch, but the reality is in doing so, you're turning off or deactivating your U.S. audience on the Eastern seaboard. So I don't think that there's a perfect time, but that's certainly something that I think a lot of people are going to hope that they look at addressing going forward is just kind of that start time because you want to be able to broaden the appeal and make the race as accessible as possible for as many people as possible now kind of talking about exactly those things. Elizabeth Blackstock over at planetf1.com and I didn't know that Elizabeth was actually doing work for planetf1.com she writes for a ton of great websites and a ton of great publications and when she's on in a couple of days I'll ask her about this but she put together a little article here that is quoted the four clear areas F1 must address after the first Las Vegas Grand Prix. The first thing that she cites is pricing and I think specifically less so maybe hospitality because I think how hotels Price and how the restaurants price and things like that is a little bit outside of the library FOM purview, but certainly ticket pricing is is something that is within their control. And she cites that hey, maybe you need to adjust the pricing. And she quote and I quote. Elizabeth here, reducing the cost will make the race more accessible for fans while offering multiple experiences and price points will help maintain the prestige of the event. The second thing that she cites as needing a little bit of remediation going into the second Grand Prix is to rework the time Table. She writes, Race weekends are notoriously exhausting. Fans at the track felt that the strain as they tried to pack in as much as they could to further grow the prestige of the Las Vegas Grand Prix organizers might consider a slightly earlier start to the sessions, ones that make more sense for both the fans at the track and the American viewers at home. Because I think some of the feedback from a lot of the fans was, hey, this might be a 24-hour city, but after sitting in the cold for three or four or five hours watching sessions of the Grand Prix, really, I want to go out and have dinner and hit the casino after the race but I'm so exhausted that's not going to happen so they don't get that full Las Vegas experience so I think for the viewership at home maybe an earlier start would be better and then I think even for the sake of the people that are there starting a little bit earlier gives them some more opportunity to enjoy the rest of the night she also cites race day logistics and she also speaks to engaging the community and I think that last one is probably a pretty big one that there was a lot of feedback and Elizabeth speaks to it here in this article but But there was a lot of feedback about the fact that the local community, and believe it or not, there is two and a half million people. There are two and a half million people that live in the rapidly growing metro Las Vegas area. And I think a lot of them felt alienated from some of the decision-making and some of the processes that were put in place to make this race happen. And I think one of the reoccurring themes or reoccurring trends or reoccurring feedback from folks that actually live in Las Vegas was that they weren't engaged in the process, that they were finding out about what was happening retroactively. They were finding out as things were happening as opposed to being educated about, hey, this is how this going to unfold. This is what the weekend looks like. This is what the delays are going to look like. This is the construction that's going to happen. Now, the good news, I think, is that a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of resurfacing the track and, and building the paddock building and the garages, that's all largely done so that physical infrastructure is in place. But that said, they still need to set up and tear down for the race weekend. And I think a lot of the people working on the strip and in some of those major entertainment areas Areas. They were frustrated because getting in and out of those areas was very difficult for them because the racetrack kind of sliced up that area. And I think for people that live in the community, it was just difficult to get around. And and that said, like I on the one hand, like if you choose to live in Vegas, there's a certain degree of awareness that you need to have about the fact that The cities existed for how many decades, principally because of tourism, and that's just a part of living there. But that said, it's no longer a small city of three or 400,000 people with a metro of a million people, all of who work directly in the hospitality industry. This is a major city of 200.5 million people with a much more diversified economy than maybe it's ever had before. So I think that's a good call out just to better engage the community. And you want them to embrace the event. You don't want them... To reject the event. You want them to be a part of it and to bring them into it and make them proud of the, of the event. And, and it's funny because I read an article recently that was kind of talking about the Las Vegas Golden Knights, which are the NHL team, the expansion team that began playing in 2017. And the article really talked about the fact that despite the fact that the city has very little heritage or history with professional hockey, they embraced that team and they own it like no other. And on the other hand, a couple of years after they arrived, the Oakland Raiders moved into town and they, the city helped them build a big new stadium. But the city is not taken to the Raiders at all. And the Raiders have not effectively engaged with the community. And now you're also going to see the Oakland Athletics move to this city. And I think people that are already frustrated because they're going to have to fork out hundreds of millions of dollars to help subsidize their new building. But all of this to say, I think the Las Vegas Golden Knights have done a really great job of integrating into the community and Liberty FOM need to do the same thing, that if this is going to be the backbone, the crown jewel of U.S. Grand Prix racing, you want the community to really back you and be help you be a big, big part of that. On the topic of Grand Prix racing in, in Las Vegas, Eric Van Heren had an interesting quote a couple of days ago. And sorry, quote, tweet, X, whatever you want to call it. And he says, Max Verstappen caused bad blood here, being Vegas, and there with his statements after qualifying. And he was told so. His father, Yoss, also thought that the world champion went a bit too far. And I quote, I understand his opinion, but you can't blindly kick against everything. And obviously what's this is referring to is, you know what, as a Grand Prix racer, a Formula One driver, particularly now with three times world champion, you're going to face a lot of media and a lot of press, and you're going to be asked a lot of questions. And you're obviously going to be asked a lot of questions when you go to a new track. Do you like the city? Do you like the layout? Do you like this? Do you like that? And they're obviously given this platform to to share their thoughts. And, and obviously I, I don't think Liberty does a lot to—I I, I say this now regretting it, but I don't know how much Liberty does around coaching the drivers. I think the teams do, particularly to satisfy and pacify their, their sponsor partners. But I think if you heard the comments this weekend, Max was— Wildly critical of the Grand Prix, and that kind of came full circle—no pun intended—after the Grand Prix, where he was suddenly singing "Viva Las Vegas" and he was very into it, et cetera, et cetera. But his his comments leading up to the Grand Prix itself were very critical of the show, of the media obligations, of the track, blah 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 blah. And there's an article over at PlanetF1.com by Mark Scott and. It's really a series of quotes from Nico Rosberg. And according to this article, Nico Rosberg says in reference to Max Verstappen being vocal about the Las Vegas Grand Prix spectacle that it's quote unquote, it's part of the game. And And I really couldn't agree more. And you know, Nico Rosberg in this article continues, what we as drivers, what we like to do is just drive the race car. And of course, in our job at F1, there's so much more that we have to do Also around the actual driving the race car, driving the race car is actually like the smallest part of what we do and especially all the media work and all the work with the sponsors in Vegas. There's so much sponsor work that a driver needs to do going from one dinner appearance to the next one activation to the next and we drivers that's like the part that we like least about our job we always want to try and minimize that because it can also negatively impact our performance on the racetrack if we get to the actual driving and are tired or something we're not concentrated and he continues and that's why very often drivers will be a bit critical when it's too much sponsor work and activation and entertainment and shows vegas of course was one of the biggest shows of the year for f1 so that's why some drivers were critical initially But it's part of the game, isn't it? So we just always have to accept that we need to dedicate some time to give back to sponsors and give back to the fans because they're the ones who pay our salaries. and. Obviously, if you've been listening to the show for a while, I can be a little critical of Nico Rosberg, but the degree of self-awareness that he has here as a former Formula One driver is pretty immense. And I totally get that. And we've had drivers on the show before that talk about the fact that so much of their time is involved in satisfying or obligating or uh, satisfying obligations to to sponsors or it's chasing and trying to attract new sponsors that that's so much of what they do and I think Nico Rosberg is absolutely bang on the money here that ultimately you know what, Max Verstappen, your your paycheck is derived from events like this, that if you're willing to drive for free, great, but I know you're probably not. And ultimately, if you're driving for free, it probably means that your team's operating without sponsors, which means they're not going to be competitive and you're not going to be winning. And do you really want to be a part of that? That... Ultimately, sponsorship and sponsor obligations and fan obligations are the backbone of being a Formula One driver. And they're right that the amount of time that they do uh, media obligations and corporate sponsor obligations and appearances and fan appearances... All of that dwarfs the time they spend in the sim and walking the track and with the engineers. And I think they would all love to spend more of their time doing that technical stuff, putting work into being a great F1 driver. But as an F1 driver, your obligations extend far beyond the track and doing these things help bring money to the team which the team can invest in parts and infrastructure and help improve their car and that's just part of doing this and I appreciate that Nico Rosberg was bold enough to say that look man there's a point where you just need to to accept that this is what it is and ultimately you can be critical of Vegas but you also need to respect the fact that Formula One FOM who effectively pays the bills of your team and cuts you a huge check every single season they've marked they've identified Vegas now as the crown jewel of the championship if not in the U.S. then in the entire world and that this is something that's really really important to them it's really important to Red Bull and it should be important to you as well so for him to go up and make those kind of comments and again he was answering questions it's not like he issued a statement the day he arrived in Vegas saying I don't want to be here I don't like this it's too show blah 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 blah, blah. it's not like he did that he was answering questions I think there's just a point where you know what don't don't chum the waters, as my old boss would say. Don't make comments that are going to attract criticism. If somebody says, hey, do you like Vegas? It's great. I love the Sphere. It's going to be a fun weekend. It's that simple. It's that simple because as an F1 driver, all of these things are are part of your job. And the last thing I'll add on this, and I was thinking about this earlier, is I saw a comment from from Daniel Ricardo, and somebody was asking him about the the conclusion of the twenty twenty four championship. And if you don't know, it's going to be a grind that you have a triple header to end the season. So I think I think it's going to be I think you're Austin, Mexico City, Brazil, and then I think you get a week off, and then your and then your Vegas, Qatar, and Abu Dhabi. So a triple header in locations that are significantly uh, far apart from each other. And he was making some comments about the fact that, yeah, that's, that's a real grind. Like, that's really, really hard. But the reality is when FOM and Liberty are signing up to add a 22nd race and a 23rd race, and a 24th race, like, you know what, we can all sit here like, oh, it's so hard on the drivers and it's so hard on the mechanics and blah, 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 blah. But the reality is who's driving that, that that's ultimately Liberty because they want to increase the commercialization of the sport and they want to bring in more revenue and create value. And there's no one that is more hungry to do the exact same thing than the teams, right? That the teams compete maybe for the for the glory of holding a trophy, but they're also doing this to make money and to promote their principal brands that they are just as excited about having a 22 or 23 or 24 race calendar as anyone. And you know what? If you're a driver and they say, "Look, hey, you know, we'll cut four races off the calendar, but we're going to take 18% of your paycheck," like I just, I don't think anyone's going to sign up for that. And you, you hear this all the time at the NBA that the calendar's too long, 82 games, blah blah. It should be 72 games. It should be 68 games. Well, the reality is maybe it makes for somewhat better basketball, and maybe there's less basketball, which makes the basketball that's on more kind of um, must-watch. But the reality is, when you knock 14 dates off the calendar, you're knocking 14 home dates with 20,000 spectators and the ticket revenue, the TV money. Like, no one's going to sign up for that. Like, the... The players might complain, but they're not signing up to take a 25% haircut on their paycheck. And the exact same is true here that now that the teams and Liberty have experienced what it's like to have 22 to 24 races on the calendar, there's no going back that these teams have now built budgets and built projections based on that degree of revenue. And they're not going to sign up to take races off the calendar. And likewise, the drivers are also not going to sign up to take a pay cut to take fewer races, even if it means... uh, Uh, A less stressful, less hectic calendar. All right, let's take one really quick break. And once we get back, we've got two more stories. We have a MotoGP corner because that championship is not decided. And then we're going to do a really quick preview of Yas Marina and Abu Dhabi coming up this weekend.
0: Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive
1: All right, welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Mark Hamilton. I always promise, and please never tell him, but you've probably noticed that when Daly's not here, we don't have as many ads. That's partly because I... I kind of like to gift our listeners with a a little ad-free show, but ultimately we need that ad revenue so we can get Mark a new internet connection and a new laptop. But today I promise we're going to keep it to one set of ads. Well, I guess there'll be ads before and after the show. So three sets of ads. Anyways, on to the next story. So the next story here comes from Racing News 365, and according to them, Pirelli is axing an F1 tire as no new compounds to be introduced in 2024, and it is a very, very confusing title that i I had to read a few times the byline reads Pirelli has announced a major change to its 2024 tire options with the elimination Of a whole compound as Abu Dhabi tire choices are revealed. So we know that Abu Dhabi or Pirelli is gonna bring the three softest tires to YAS this weekend. We've talked about that already. But there's an interesting thing here, which is a little bit confusing. So we all know the C1, the C2, the C3, the C4, and the C5. Well, Pirelli is gonna axe a compound next year but we're still going to have a c1 a c2 a c3 a c4 and a c5 and how is that possible because there's also p0 tire that we haven't actually seen this year and i read here from racingnews365.com ahead of the 2023 season pirelli introduced a new specification c1 compound to reduce a difference in performance between the then hardest c1 and c2 tires with the p0 Being the P1 compound from 2022. However, despite being tested, the tire was never used during a Grand Prix weekend, with Pirelli opting for the C1 as its hardest tire at high energy tracks that place heavy loads on the tire, such as Barcelona. Or Silverstone. And the article continues For 2024, the Pirelli range is set to revert back to five compounds, with the C1 being the hardest and the C5 the softest. The colors will remain the same, with the softest tire being red marked, the medium being yellow, and the hardest tire carrying white sidewall markings. The article continues. As has been customary now, there will be a test day on the Tuesday after the Grand Prix with each team fielding two cars, one for young drivers and others in theory for testing tires, explained Pirelli's head of motorsport, Mario Isola. However, there will be no new compounds to try out. The FIA recently communicated that the 2024 compounds will be the same as this year. The only change is that there are now five rather than six available to them due to the elimination of the CO, which I previously referred to as P0, which was never used during a race weekend this year. So the test, of course, he's referring referring to the test following Abu Dhabi, the Yas Marina weekend. So the test could be helpful for the teams to work on tire management by gathering data for the next season. The teams will have a predetermined allocation for the test. The car doing the tire work will have 10 sets available at the test, consisting of one C1, one C2, two C5, and three sets each of C4 and C3. And he concludes, meanwhile, the car for young drivers will have two sets each of C3 and C5 available, as well as four sets of C4. Now, our final news story before we jump over to MotoGP Corner comes from Adam Cooper over at Autosport.com. And according to Autosport.com, Aston Martin is not focused on McLaren in F1 Abu Dhabi finale, writes Adam Cooper. Aston Martin team principal Mike Crack insisted that the Silverstone outfit won't be focused on its battle with McLaren at the Formula 1 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix this coming weekend. The article continues. Aston was in front of the Woking outfit for most of the season until McLaren moved into fourth place in the Constructors' World Championship after the U.S. Grand Prix at Austin. So this is this is interesting. And you know, Mike Crack says here, for me, it doesn't change anything compared to two or three races ago. We can only influence what we do ourselves. The first bit is we have to have a fast car in Abu Dhabi because we are behind. So it's something we're not on the defense. We have to go flat out, and then we see, we have to do the best possible, and then we see what is the result. So the reality is, I think he's downplaying the importance of finishing ahead of McLaren. And obviously, it's a pretty significant task to overtake that team by 11 points. You need to outscore them in the season finale by 11 points if you want to secure P4 in the Constructors' Championship. And I think no matter how much he does, downplays the importance of their performance this weekend and the importance of p4 i know for everybody back at silverstone this is a hugely important race and i think given how roller coaster their season has been to to have kind of given up p2 and p3 and then p4 and to currently be sitting p5 to be able to claw back that p4 position in the constructors championship is really important for this team because one it brings a windfall of incremental prize money in the constructors championship and I think that's really important to them and you know we shared recently that they posted a financial loss in 2021 and 2022 it's very possible they're going to post a loss this year so I think that incremental prize money will kind of offset that but I also just think that from a a pride perspective to be able to say hey we improved incrementally in the constructors Championship by X number of spots year over year, and we finish P4, that's a really powerful thing to take back to the factory and to build around. And for the team to look up in the standings and say, hey, look, you know, we only finished behind Red Bull, the now two-time Constructors Champion, we finished behind Mercedes, and we finished behind Ferrari, like, that's a pretty good company to keep. I just, I think it would be really difficult for them to be really happy with this season if they finished behind McLaren, particularly given how that team faced monumental challenges right from their car reveal in February through winter testing in the first half of the season, that it's not that you just gave up uh, a position in the Constructors' Championship to Mercedes and Ferrari, perennial contenders, but also that you gave up a position in the Constructors' Championship to McLaren. And all of this said, I, I think that P4 means probably just as much to that team as, More so from a financial perspective, because we know Woking is not flush for cash and they've been borrowing heavily to pay off their debts and realign their debts. And of course, they sold off their own factory in a lease back agreement because they needed that influx of cash that Think it's gonna be pretty important for that team as well. So I think as much as I'll be keeping my eye on Ferrari versus Mercedes this weekend to see who can eke out P2, I think I'll be equally as important kind of interested in seeing who's ultimately gonna be able to eke out P4 because I think there's definitely some bragging rights there. And that jingle can of course mean only one thing that it's time for MotoGP Corner. Now, full disclosure, I just recorded or thought I'd recorded what was possibly the best MotoGP Corner I had ever done because I didn't have Daily glaring at me over the Zoom call hoping that I wrapped this up as quickly as possible. And then I looked over and realized I didn't hit the record button. So I'm going to try and do this once again. Now, unlike Unlike the Formula 1 Championship, which was wrapped up, what, half-dozen races ago, the MotoGP Championship is not yet decided. And this is where it gets super juicy. We are going into the final race of the season in Valencia, which is the traditional endpoint of the MotoGP Championship. And we have two riders that could conceivably win this title. Sitting P1 currently in the championship... The Italian rider Francesco Bagnaia, the Ducati rider, riding for Ducati Lenovo team, sits on 437 points. Now, listen to this. His last six races, P2, P1, P2, P2, P3, P2. So he's had a stellar close to a season. Sitting P2 and the only rider that could possibly grapple this championship away from him the spanish rider jorge martin also on a ducati bike but riding for prima Pramac racing his last six races a p1 of retirement which could prove to be very costly a p5 a win a p4 and a p10 so his his conclusion or the conclusion to his championship has obviously been a little bit more choppy but he sits on 416 points so there's only 21 points between the two of them now Again, if you don't know, the distribution of prize points for a race win is not totally different than than Formula 1. First place gets 25, second gets 20, third gets 16, fourth 13, fifth 11, and sixth 10. Now, the difference, I think, is in MotoGP, riders all the way up to P15 get points. Now, the big difference here, and this is what's really going to throw kind of a wrench, maybe not a wrench, but an extra degree of excitement into the, the race this weekend, is like we've talked about before, Every single race weekend in MotoGP is a sprint weekend. So there's not only a race this weekend with full points, there is a sprint race this weekend as well. And points are awarded 12 for first, 9 for second, 7 for third, 6th for fourth, 5 for fifth, Fourth for sixth. I don't know why I'm struggling with that. But all of that to say, they pay points right up to P9 in the sprint race. So there are a ton of points available this weekend. And that championship is wide open. And just reflects once again why MotoGP is in so many ways the best best racing series on the planet when you talk about parity and all those other kind of things. A quick update, constructor standings. Now, of course, constructors are a little bit different. The constructor standings of MotoGP are a little bit different than F1 because they're cumulative of all the points earned by the engine manufacturer. So when we talk about Ducati here, we're talking about the points earned from all of the riders on Ducati powered bikes. So, this would be like in F1 if Mercedes points in the Constructors Championship were a combination of Williams points and Aston Martin points and McLaren points and Mercedes points. So, Ducati sits on 663 points. They have dominated this championship, followed by KDM at 348, Aprilia on 309, Yamaha 187, Honda 174. Absolutely a season to forget for both of those. Oh, cherished. Japanese former superpowers in the world of Moto GP. And just on the Honda piece, to a quick note that as Mark Marquez goes, so too does Red Bull. Red Bull's been a big partner of that team. Not a title sponsor, but their logo has been very prominently displayed on that bike for many years. They're exiting that relationship. And then a quick recap of the team standings, which is kind of the F1 equivalent of the constructors' championships. Prima Pramic Racing on 620, Ducati Lenovo on 531, Italian Mooney VR 46 racing. Well, actually, the reality is. Is the top three teams are all uh, Italian teams. But Moody VR46 Racing, that's Valentino's team. He owns that team inside and out. And I think it's their second or third year. Uh, astonishing 520 points. They won three races this year. Red Bull KDM, Aprilia Racing, Grassini Racing, MotoGP, Monster Energy Yamaha. That is the factory Yamaha team. Crypto, Data, RNF Moto GP MotoGP team. Well, it's awfully, awfully big shame that the factory Repsol Honda team finished behind them in P9. Then LCR Honda in P10. And then Gas Gas. The factory gas, gas factory racing tech three team finished P11. So, hopefully, by the time we sit down to do our Yas Marina review this coming weekend, we'll be able to provide an update on who the new MotoGP champion is. All right, I, I think it's time that we do a mini baby quick, fast, compact, efficient. Yas Marina preview, and it's crazy because I think this now is the fourth time that I've sat down with Mr. Daly to do a Yas Marina preview, although of course he's not here today because he's off picking up that desperately needed laptop, but I think it's the fourth time, which just reflects how long I've been doing this show for, so Yas Marina the circuit opened back in 2009. It was pretty novel at the time, and while not the first race in the Middle East because it was preceded by Bahrain, which landed on the calendar in 2004, um, it was unique because it was always designed to be something of a hybrid day-night race, that it always starts at dusk, which is pretty interesting. So the temperature certainly cools. Again, it's still very much t-shirt weather at 6, 7 o'clock in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates when this Races ongoing. I know because I've had the pleasure of being there many, many times, but the reality is it's still pretty warm. But the track temperature does drop, and as it does, tire temperature drops a little bit, but At the same time, the track gets a little bit more rubbered in as the race goes on. So, like I said, track opened in 2009. It's a purpose-built, dedicated racing circuit. It is used throughout the calendar. So, unlike a lot of circuits, like we might see with the Hungora Ring, which get a little bit dusty, a little bit dirty, a little bit sandy, this track is in constant use. They use it for the community. It's open to community for biking and running on Thursday nights. Uh, It's used for all kinds of racing series. MotoGP hasn't been there. Probably wouldn't be a great MotoGP track, although. I would still love to see it, but it definitely is open to a ton of open-world racing championships, um, and it gets a ton of use. It is a, a beautiful facility on what's a largely reclaimed or man-made island. It is positioned immediately next door to Ferrari World, a very large roller coaster-based theme park. I've been there. I'm not a roller coaster guy, so I spent a lot of time playing on the kids' uh, bumper cars, but again, it's very, very fun, and it's immediately adjacent to Mall, which is a big, beautiful high-end mall, most of these things within walking distance of each other. On Yoss Island as well is a large-scale arena where they played a lot of NBA exhibition games. There's an outside concert venue. I've seen Rihanna there, which was fantastic. And there's a ton of high-end hotels, boutique restaurants, restaurants, cafes, bars. It's a great place to see the race weekend. And I think by 2009 standards, and really even by 2016, 2007 standards, it was really the gold bar with which Formula One venues and experiences could be referenced again. Now, it's very different than Austin or Silverstone or Spa or a lot of these traditional festival-like European venues. It is very, very upscale. It is very, very classy. It's still a great place to watch a race, but the vibes are very different than if you're used to going to Silverstone or if you're going used to going to Austin. It's more aligned maybe with that Vegas experience or maybe that that Miami or Singapore experience. All of these things to say I, I love the United Arab Emirates. I spent a lot of time there. My wife has family there, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a great place to go and it's a great place to see a Formula One Grand Prix. Just be aware it's not that camping carnival Festival experience that it is very polished, very clean, very upscale. And one of the big distinctions between this and a lot of other events is that, unlike a lot of events like Austin, where you just walk in the gates and you're in the venue and you can walk around and see and do whatever you want, they compartmentalize the track into zones. So when you enter your zone, you're kind of restricted to your zone. And I think they do that for security, but I think they also do it because there's a lot of roads that intersect the outskirts of the track and they just don't have the ability to kind of provide that experience. Now, In terms of the track this weekend, there are 58 laps, race distance, not surprisingly, 306 or just over 306 kilometers. The circuit length is 5.281 kilometers. And the lap record is 126.103 by Max Verstappen in 2021. And of course, in 2021, we also saw a couple of corners on this track reprofiled to improve racing and to improve lap times, which is probably not a reason or Probably the reason, it's not surprising, the fastest lap time came in 2021. One, it was the first year of the changes, and two, it was the last year of the old regulations. Now, in terms of racing, it has been markedly improved since 2021 that this was a track that typically experienced a lot of criticism from f1 purists that hey look if you have the ability to build a track from the ground up why did you build this specific track it's not great for racing but i think they've done a couple of tweaks that reinforce the fact that the track owners and the race organizers are definitely committed to making sure that this event is on par with some of the best in the world both in terms of fan experience at the track in terms of hospitality and things like that but also in terms of just making sure that it is the spectacle that it needs and should absolutely be so this week I think, and I, I kind of teased at some of these things a couple of minutes ago. I, I think the reality is for me, the championships decided. Do we see Max win race number 19? Does somebody else break through? And do we see somebody other than a Red Bull or a Ferrari driver win a Grand Prix this year? Obviously, by historical standards in terms of dominance, Red Bull has set every measurable bar and broken every measurable record this season. But it'll be interesting to see just how this plays out. And like I said earlier, I think a couple of things that I will certainly be interested in watching this weekend is less so about Red Bull at the front. Although, of course, it does Max win and great lap or win number 19 and I think there's every reason to think that he will absolutely win this weekend and take home win number 19 and podium number 21 but I think the question is hey what happens at P2 does does Mercedes manage to eke out Ferrari or Ferrari can Ferrari put together a really good weekend and steal P2 away and I think that matters to both of those teams maybe not financially but from a bragging rights perspective it's really important that for Ferrari under their new leadership to be able to say hey P2 in the championship that's a market improvement. It's something that we can build on. Or does Mercedes come back and say, hey, look, you know what? We got it wrong at 22. We really got it wrong for much of 23, but we still finished P2 and that's something to build on. And then when we talk about Aston Martin and McLaren, and I don't really need to go into detail there, but really, you know what? It's really important to both of those teams, whether they acknowledge it or not. Now from a tire selection perspective, I talked about this a couple of minutes ago we're going to see the softest compounds this weekend we're going to see the C3, the C4 and the C5 and of course this 16 lap circuit which now has some increasingly fast sections including a 1.2 kilometer straight between turns 5 and 6 should amp up the racing excitement simply because we've seen some changes and because the cars are smaller than they were in 21 and years prior maybe, maybe we see a little bit more overtaking and certainly those corners that were Modified in 2021, which also, by the way, shortened the lap, the track a little bit, um, should improve that some degree. Now, I, I always like to lead into Mario Isola, of course, the head of Pirelli Motorsports. Uh, he says, "We go from the lights of Las Vegas to the Abu Dhabi sunset in the space of just a few days after a journey of just over 13." thousand kilometers for a race that is now well established as the season closer. Yas Marina will host the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix for the 15th time this weekend. Wow, congratulations Abu Dhabi. And 11 of those mark the final race of the season. He continues, the track was modified in 21 to make it faster and more flowing, which also created extra overtaking opportunities as we saw over the last two races there. Yas Marina is on the lower end of the scale when it comes to tire demands, despite the vertical loads on the front axle in particular. As a result, we've selected the softest three compounds with C3 as the hard, C4 as the medium, and C5 as the soft. This is the same choice as last year and also an identical selection to that scene at Las Vegas last weekend, confirmation of the versatility of the current compounds. And it concludes, as has become customary now, there'll be a test day on the Tuesday after the Grand Prix with each team fielding two cars one for young drivers and the other in theory for testing tires however there'll be no new compounds to try out the FIA recently communicated that the 2024 compounds will be the same as this year with the only change being that there are now five rather than six available to them due to the elimination of the C0 which was never actually used so the test could be helpful for the teams to work on tire management by gathering data for next Season. And just on that note as well, Philip Horton tweeted just uh, just recently lots of teams using Abu Dhabi FP1 to fulfill F1 rookie runs. Of course, every team is obligated to have a rookie do a practice session. Red Bull is going to have Jake Dennis. Red Bull is also going to have Isaac Hajar. Uh, looks like Mercedes is going to have Frank Vesti. Robert Schwartzman for Ferrari. Jack Dewin, of course, the relative of Mick Dewin, the five times MotoGP champion. He'll be suiting up for Alpine. Paddle Award for McLaren. Drugovich for Aston Martin. Uh, Poucher for uh, AR. Oliver Bierman for Haas and Zach O'Sullivan for Williams. So uh, I think a lot of these teams probably won't get a lot of exposure, um, but it'll be interesting to see, of course, how they uh, how they look out there because they're able to index their times on similar compounds to other drivers. And then finally, the last comment on Yas Marina, just as a point of reference, I think last year, most teams were on a one-stop strategy with a combination of mediums and hards. I wouldn't actually expect anyone to run a soft this weekend. I think the mediums and softs, those compounds do pretty well on a pretty smooth circuit and you can get some pretty good mileage out of them. My prediction, obviously, Max Verstappen will likely win this race. He'll likely take qualifying. He knows the track. He's familiar with similar compounds. He's run it in a similar spec car. There's every reason to think that he's going to win this weekend Uh, from a Red Bull perspective. Obviously, Sergio Perez is going to look to finish strong because obviously, I think he's under contract. We all know he's under contract for 24, but there's no guarantees that he's going to be back. And of course, I think it'll be interesting to see P2, P4. How does Daniel Ricciardo look? Can... Can Lad Stroll repeat the fact that he's had a couple of P5 finishes here to wrap up the season? Still some cool things to see. And of course, it's always neat to see this sunset race that starts with the sun starting to set that pinkish golden hue in the sky. And then of course it cools down, but tire management is pretty easy because the temperature stays, although it drops, stays relatively consistent. And even though the temperature drops and the track temperature kind of gets a little bit lower, uh, the track does get increasingly rubbered in, meaning there's some additional grip for those drivers. All right, thank you everybody for tuning in. We're going to wrap this bad boy up here at an hour. Mr. Daly will be back on Sunday as we review the final Grand Prix race. And of course, next week, we also have our 500th episode extravaganza dropping. We have our Haas, docu- Haas documentary. Hopefully nobody ever does a documentary about Haas. We've already got a great book about Haas and the rich energy fiasco by Alanis King and Elizabeth Blackstock. But next week, like I said, we'll have the 500th episode extravaganza. We are going to do a recap review view of the brawn documentary that's on hulu slash disney plus depending on the territory that you're in we've got megan gilks coming up and we promise we're going to pump out lots of great fee or feed lots of great content during the off season and if you're looking for a little bit more Skidaria f1 If you haven't found us on Instagram, and apologies, I know there was some confusion because we had two accounts live concurrently. And I think Mr. Daily has gone and decommissioned the old one that hadn't been updated since, I think, since before I started on the show. But the new one has, I think, 26 or 30 posts and all of them within the last couple of weeks. The one thing that you may not be expecting to see is that we have our new branding, our black and gold logo, very reminiscent of Rich Energy, unfortunately. But our new black and gold logo is on our Instagram account. And eventually that will make its way onto our podcast artwork as well. So when you log into Spotify or Apple, you'll soon see our new rebranded logo and colors and things like that. And the main reason for that is that we've now got something to work with when it comes to finally kind of developing and creating some merchandise. So with that, I think that's all we've got for today. Thank you so much as always for all of the love and all of the support. We appreciate every single one of you for listening. Um, And even though I think the numbers are down a little bit at this point versus earlier in the season, I'll be totally honest, aside from this show, I'm certainly consuming less F1 content because the championship was in so many ways a bit of a bust. But I promise you we're going to be providing tons of great content throughout the offseason. And then next year, well, maybe not a blank slate, there's always the possibility of some great surprises that we know Mercedes and Aston Martin, Red Bull, and all of these teams have been working on their cars, and there could always be a big surprise next year. And we could have a new championship contender that maybe we're not even talking about. So make sure to keep tuning in during the offseason. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye for now.
0: I feel like a locomotive, sipping, drinking, Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner, did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song, good man My songs gon' break through like a running back